Chinese Communist Party is at war with the United States. They're not competitors. And they've stated this. They seem to be following this doctrine called unrestricted warfare, which the first rule is um, there are no rules. And the second rule is everything's a battlefield. This unseen hand is pushing these things, which are destroying culture and harmonizing the world into a communist mentality. If there's a pandemic treaty and then uh, they declare a global health emergency, we automatically go into these One Health-based uh, rules and regulations and laws, if you will, that completely subverts our constitutions, our, you know, our sovereign uh, systems of governance. You've never had this kind of power in one body before. Now that we know the control that the Chinese Communist Party has over the WHO and its member countries, it's almost like China is pre-installing the government that will be there when they waltz in and become the global hegemon. Welcome to the Staying Free podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Brian O'Shea. Brian is an intelligence specialist with a background in strategic military intel, enterprise intelligence architecture, and competitive intelligence. He provides expertise in foreign internal defense to communities across the United States, and also has a column with the Daily Clout, where he's an outspoken commentator on world affairs. So when I first reached out to Brian to come on the podcast, I actually didn't know too much about his background. But when he sent me over some information about his expertise, giving me ideas of some angles that we could go with the conversation, I realized that he has quite an outstanding resume for all the kind of things that he talks about. He really is an expert in his field. So this episode definitely gets into the weeds of geopolitics, which I find very, very interesting. And especially so with this episode where I was able to draw on Brian's very unique and informed perspective. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. If you do like the episode, please give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, make sure you give it a five-star rating on whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, welcome. Do give the pod a subscribe for future episodes. And just a quick mention here that the podcast is going to be going audio only for the foreseeable future until I get myself up to speed on a censorship-free video platform. I had my last episode with Karen Haradine pulled from YouTube simply because she mentioned the words toxic vaccine on one occasion throughout the entire podcast. So that's how ridiculous YouTube is these days with its censorship. So I've decided I'm not going to put my episodes there at all anymore. I might put trailers there just so that people who like to subscribe on YouTube know when an episode has been released, but I definitely won't be uploading any more videos. So I'll be moving probably to Rumble going forward, but it is going to take a little bit of time to get my episodes on there. So just a side note there. As always, if you want to support me, then there are links to how you can do that in the description. And once again, a new way to support me is by checking out the affiliate links. The first one on there is for Surfshark VPN, which is a personal favorite of mine. And at the moment, they've got an amazing deal with 82% off and the first two months free. And Surfshark is already one of the most price competitive VPNs on the market. So if you don't already have a VPN or you're looking to switch, you should definitely consider Surfshark. And please do use my affiliate link as well so you can support my content at the same time. As always, any support you're able to give me is hugely appreciated. All right, that's enough for the intro. Let's get into the episode. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no worries. I mean, I've been uh, doing a lot of research on, uh, on you before having this conversation and looking at kind of some of the interviews that you've been doing and everything like that. So, um, you know, I've got so many things that I want to kind of get into and talk to you about today. I know that you have a lot of areas of expertise. Uh, but first of all, before I do, do you want to just um, give my listeners a little bit of an intro and a background as to yourself? 
Oh, sure. Well, my name is Brian O'Shea and very happy to be here. Uh, my background is I spent pretty much all of my adult life in some intelligence discipline or another, 11 years in military intelligence, mainly in two special forces groups. After that, I was in government intelligence <clears throat> in the Fort Meade and Langley areas and uh, did that for another 12 years, I believe. And then I got into private competitive intelligence, which is companies legally spying on each other. So I worked for companies in big pharma, uh, defense, uh, finance, private family, banking. And then uh, I took all these skill sets and, and put them into my own company, first as an investigations company called Stryker Pierce. And then we were bought up by Centurion Intelligence Partners, where I'm currently the COO, providing all, all manner of intelligence, private intelligence services to our clients. Cool. And now you are also a writer at the Daily Cloud, or you do more than that? I know that um, Naomi Wolf, who runs that, uh, is your wife. So mm -hmm. what's your kind of, um, what is it you're involved in there? Oh, so I'm, I'm I, you know, I was looking at all of these things from the get go, uh, from the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, she invited me to start a column with what I was finding. So yes, I'm a writer, uh, investigative journalist, I guess you'd say, and the name of the column is mostly Peaceful where we take the headlines and we go behind them and we really break them down and what they really mean. Okay, cool. So yeah, it sounds like your your background is like very, very targeted towards this kind of stuff. It sounds like you're a good person to have on the side of freedom with your, given well, everything you. you've been involved in. So how did you get into all that stuff? First of all, you know, like um, intelligence and everything like that. Like I, I'm just always interested to, to hear how you get into that kind of work. Well, I, I think it's a typical, you know, little boy wanting to be a spy story um you know growing up i had six brothers we were always playing military games against each other just you know like most kids do with the cap guns and all that and then that got boring so we started kind of like figuring out how to use camouflage and then you know as i got older um into my teens i saw my first tom clancy movie i think it was patriot games and uh, started reading those books. And I was like, man, this is what I want to do. This is cool as hell. And so I joined the military and um, I told my, yeah, I had some good scholarships and my mom was heartbroken when I said I wanted to join the military. Um, many of my brothers had, but she was hoping I'd go right to college. And I had a couple scholarships, like I said. And so I talked to my Latin teacher and he said, uh, well, if you're going to go into the military, go into the Defense Language Institute, if you can get in. So I took a test, got in, and that set my path forward on the intelligence world. So two years of Arabic training led to electronic warfare training, signals intelligence, tactical intelligence. And then in the military, in the army, you have the freedom to kind of go to the kind, pick your unit every time you re-enlist. So as soon as I could, I went from the 101st, the, the historical 101st Airborne Division to 5th Special Forces. And from there, it really just, you know, I, I don't want to say I was living the dream, but I did love it. And I, I loved being in the military and, uh, you know, in Special Forces units. And I supported the Green Berets. I was not a Green Beret. Um, so we supported them. So I always say heavier rucksacks and not all the glory. And uh, we supported them. And... Um, 
it really gave me a good scope of the different disciplines of intelligence, the different levels, strategic, tactical. And what was nice about special forces is we're in with the people in the countries we're working with. So you really, really got to really submerge yourself in the culture and everything like that. And then I did that in the Middle East, and then I went to another group, and I did that in Southeast Asia. Wow, okay. Did you say, um, did you say it was the Defense Language Institute? Is that the- yeah, in Monterey, California. That was what you were advised to go into by this by my Latin teacher. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> what What is that? What is that? And why did hmm. he Why did he encourage it? Well, he encouraged it because uh, he he saw that I had the the capability to do a lot with my 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 mind, my brain. And there's nothing wrong with being infantry or anything else. I mean, those are all very smart people too. But he he was a bit of a mentor. And he kind of advised, like, I think you'd be happiest based on what I told him I wanted to do in the fields of intelligence. And so he recommended Defense Language Institute because it's a guarantee. I mean, if you pass the test to get into the military really high, which I maxed, um, and then I maxed the Defense Language Aptitude Battery test. So I was chosen for Arabic because at the time, this is about 91, 92. Um, Desert Storm, Desert Shield had just ended. And so the School of the Middle East in the Presidio of Monterey in California, that was like a huge thing. And so for two years, you get out of basic training and then you go to the Defense Language Institute for eight hours a day. You're just learning language, uh, the language you're assigned to. That's all you do all day long. You're wearing a uniform, but it's like being in college in uniform. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, so so basically, defense language is just learning a foreign language and then applying it for defense purposes, essentially. Yeah, it's um, it's an add-on skill. So my uh, core skill or uh, job was intelligence analyst, um, and starting as a signals intelligence analyst, and but I had a language. So analysts don't need a language, but I had one, whereas collectors and interrogators, they have to have, they have, to have a language. Um, mine was, ended up being an add-on. And, you know, the, the funny thing about it was with that and the additional intelligence training, um, by the time I was done training, I only had one year left on my enlistment. So I spent three years training and I had one year left. But, of course, I re-enlisted because I wanted to go do things. Right. Okay. So at that time, presumably you felt very like patriotic about, you know, the country and wanting to kind of do things for the country. Did you have any doubts in your mind as to whether, did you ever doubt, am I on the right side here or have any doubts in that? Or were you always just like, no, everything we're doing is for, for, for a good cause. You know, were you in any way, I guess, of a kind of conspiracy theorist at that time or had any doubts about that? Or you were very, very just on board with it? No, I mean, I, I would say... Not really. And, and to, to, to be quite honest, I, I can honestly say, I mean, I was very young, so I, I was doing it less for patriotism and more for mm, okay. this is really cool and it's an adventure, um, right. which it was. And so, no, I never the, I never had doubts until um, Operation Enduring Freedom. And I was deployed to the southern Philippines uh, right after the 9-11 attacks with first special forces. And I started noticing things then, like, you know, certain companies had set up ATMs already, uh, and you know, cash machines for the soldiers. 
and of course, you don't really need cash because you're, you're in Zambawanga. Um, but they made us take out money like once a week. So that way the provider of the ATM could make their fees. Or we started noticing the food was terrible. That was government contracted. So we would buy locally. And then they, they forced us. They just started taking the, the meal out of our paycheck, whether we ate or not. And that's, that's when I really started having doubts. And that's around the time I decided, okay, I think I'm all done here. Um, okay. That and the fact that I got stop lost um, after 10 years, it suddenly it looked like I couldn't get out for a while, which I ended up getting out. But that's when I think I started not really having conspiracy theories, more like, okay, I, I saw the kind of gross business side of, of it. And I, I, I didn't like that. I see. Okay. So just um, briefly, what, what actually is um, Operation Enduring Freedom? I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. Operation specifically. Um, that was the name of the global war on terror. Um, ah, was it? Okay. Right, right, right. And, and, and in hindsight, I, I would warn anyone that anytime a war has an ambiguous title, uh, don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't uh, wave your pom-poms because how does, does a global war on terror or, you know, fighting for democracy, does that ever end? It doesn't have to if they don't want it to. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes absolutely no sense as well. I kind of think that with all of these things, actually thinking about it now, I'm sure we'll get into this, but there's a lot of kind of like inversion going on. And I talk about this a lot in the podcast where you have something which is, which is purportedly named one thing, mm. but it's actually the polar opposite of that thing. And you think about something like Operation Enduring Freedom. Well, it, what's it about? It's about, you know, di dispossessing people of their freedoms. You know, things like the Patriot right. Act. What's it about? It's the most anti-patriotic thing you could possibly do. It's basically just the dismantlement of the Constitution. You know, like the, mm -hmm. the, these things all started, I think, around that time, especially around 9-11. I remember even when I was young around the time of 9-11, I think, I can't remember exactly how old I was at the time, but... I remember when, you know, after in the aftermath of that, the Patriot Act um, kind of coming about. And I just thought this is just absolutely like crazy. This is, you mm. know, this is the the kind of death knell of, um, you know, what we traditionally thought of law and order and, you know, proper freedom and proper kind of, you know, um, due process, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess. Uh, sorry. Yeah, go on. Oh, no, I was going to jump. Sorry, I was going to jump in there and say th and this is. This is, I think, what you don't hear a lot. So for me, after 2003, I went right into the intelligence world on the government side as a contractor. And we didn't feel that way. And, I, you know, this, this really talks to, you know, those questions a lot of people have about how can people at CDC do what they're doing or NIH do what they're doing. And I can honestly say that when you're in that world of government work and you've been there for a long time, you don't feel the same attachment to the rest of the world as the people that are in it. So, for instance, when I would leave work and drive down through Arlington, Virginia or D.C. where I lived, the people out there, they seemed like avatars to me. Like they didn't seem like we, I, I didn't feel part of that community, even though I lived in that community, because I had a whole other community that kind of encompassed my whole life. And it wasn't really until I spent some time contracting, and, and by contracting, I mean, I was just augmenting the workforce. I was doing the same work, same clearance, everything. But then I started get when I got out, I realized, oh, 
wait a minute, this is this is not good. We we had no idea on the inside what's really going on. And I'm not trying to exonerate anyone, but I, I can say there is a real detachment mentality um, within government, uh, the government workforce from, you know, the citizenry. Right. OK. Yeah, that's interesting. But at the time, you, you didn't you weren't aware of that until kind of starting to kind of move away from that community. Well, it helped me do my job. I was like, of course, there's bad terrorists out there. And, um, you know, it's great to have more as an intel person. That's more intel. But then you start thinking, well, wait a minute. This can be turned on me as well, which that's what they do. I mean, in the intelligence community, you do start getting accused. I wasn't accused of anything, but you start getting accused of things by your own employers simply so they can reduce the workforce. And my argument to that was like, well, just fire us. I mean, like you don't have to, you know, attack contractors and get just to reduce your workforce now that Osama bin Laden is dead. Just and the contract. So they, they do this weird mm-hmm. culling um, and they use those things against us or against everyone. Wow, that's that's strange. I never heard that before. It seems like a very, I don't know, a culture that you just wouldn't know about any of these things yeah. being outside of it. But just just um, on what you were mentioning there with the uh, what was going on with the ATMs, I didn't quite understand what actually was going on there. Was it that you were, they were bringing in American banks into these places to to, to start installing their infrastructure? More like, um, more like uh, contract. Yeah, I mean uh, the banks, of course. But no, there's these subcontracts that go with every deployment. So there's food, there's logistics, there's everything. Dr- you know, drivers sometimes and um, dry cleaning, and so. What would happen is they bring in all these things, uh, like, for instance, in the green zone, they had like Subway and all these you know, franchises out in Iraq. And right. what happened in the Philippines, and I can't speak for Iraq because uh, I was across the pond there, but um, they, they, they made us use them so that way that contracting firm could make their money. So obviously there's, there was some lobbying going on saying, hey, why aren't the soldiers using the ATMs? You better make sure they use them or, you know, we won't fund your campaign. Who knows? But that's what it felt like. And um, that happened a lot. And that, that, that I became aware of that back in, you know, in Haiti, back in the 90s when there was a deployment to Haiti uh, because they thought there might be some Middle Eastern involvement in the... Uh, the big, um, you know, uh, coup that happened there in the 90s. And everyone got there and there was no food, <laughs> even though it had been contracted. So people, the soldiers are basically stuck with whatever they had in their backpacks. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really wild, isn't it? I mean, it, it seems kind of just so clear that the American war machine, and maybe it's unfair to say just the American war machine because so much of the Western world is actually on board with this, but... Really, I just I I don't know any I don't know what the last legitimate war was. You know, I I feel like you have to go back probably almost I don't know what like eighty ninety years. I just can't think of when that actually would be. I think the one that's often used in in the UK as being our last you know recent legitimate war was um, Kosovo. But even then, mm. I'm, I don't really know much about it. But in your opinion. When do you think things did change in that direction in America? When did you think that America went down a road of these wars being kind of corporate wars as opposed to, you know, legitimate 
actions to to try to better the world? I think that's that's a great question. Really great question. Um, Never thought about it. If I had to give my my opinion on that, thinking about it, I would say if you look at Desert Storm and Desert Shield in the early nineties, that seems to be the crossroads of corporate war sponsorship and um, the last Cold War war. I mean, it was a containment war, so some have called it the last Cold War war. Okay. Um, I, I would say that was, an, that was a legitimate and very clearly defined um, outcome and cause. Um, but you did see it was a big advertisement for, you know, weapons manufacturers with the smart bombs and, and, and you know, the uh, precision guided missiles. They, they always show that one going through the, the chimney. And who knows? I mean, that could have been anything that could have been, you know, doctored. Um, but the thing is, that seemed like the that that's where the turning point seems to be. And that seems to be the turning point for a lot of things in the world uh, was Desert Storm, Desert Shield. So that's that's my opinion, because if you look at Grenada and those type of uh, skirmishes, they, I mean, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty cut and dry. Like, you know, we got a bad got some students got send in the Marines. Let's go rescue that sort of thing. But right. after that, it gets a bit murky, especially like the Kosovo, Sarajevo and all those. Okay, so so which kind of countries? I mean, I know that you might there might be some stuff that you aren't able to divulge, so don't feel mm-hmm. feel free to ignore specifics. But like, which kind of countries were you actually deployed to? It, um, which kind or uh, which ones? I, I guess yeah, which which countries? Yeah, and or which regions? I mean, I was deployed to over forty seven different countries. The the thing oh, with wow, okay. when you're in a when you're in special forces units, they don't they don't wait for the big wars. They just send them in wherever they need to go. So everything from exercises and, you know, Thailand and, uh, parts, you know, Korea, different parts of Eastern Europe, uh, even though I was not in an Eastern European facing group, uh, you do get lent out a lot depending on your skill set. Um, but really all over the place, wherever you could think of <laughs> something bad happening, usually <laughs> yeah. components of special forces are going to be there and not not to cause the bad thing. And I and again, not exonerating, but in my time, I never saw anyone get deployed to stir things up. We were usually right. there to put a Band-Aid on something. Um, so, yeah, all over, but 47 countries and not counting when I did Intel work and competitive Intel work. Right. OK. So, yeah, I think that kind of you know sets the, sets the scene definitely in terms of your your background and obviously you have like a lot of experience in this in this kind of area so mm-hmm. um you know what was your i guess fast forwarding the clock a bit what was your kind of moment of realizing the world wasn't as, as it seems obviously now you're you know involved a lot in speaking out and you're a big part of the freedom movement and and all the rest of it so before before that occurred when was it that things started to change for you in terms of the way you saw the world um i would say probably 2002 when I was in southern Philippines and I was watching the news of what was happening and there was some reporting on where we were as first special forces and I remember a a grenade had been tossed in a local theater down the street from us targeting us uh, soldiers and they had wanted posters all over town of like a silhouette of an American soldier like we were worth a lot (laughs) to the Abu Sayyaf group and the Right. Militants. But um, I, I remember, I believe it was Fox, CNN. I mean, 
I think one or both of those um, reporting on bombs dropping on us in the southern Philippines. And at the time, I was getting ready to do my set on a karaoke machine with the Filipino soldiers. I'm looking around and I'm saying, bombs. I don't really see any bombs coming down here. But it was a way to keep it going. Uh, you know, yes, there were attacks, but it wasn't like, you know, shrapnel was raining down on us. Uh, that's when I started seeing it. And then really going into the intelligence uh, uh, agencies and seeing the way the world was reporting on us, like in one particular agency, and I can't specify which ones because it's contractually illegal um, for 75 years. So in 75 years, I could tell you, but um, they, <laughs> the way they talked about the agencies and what they're doing and everything, I'm like, well, that's not really, com that's not really logical. Um, or, you know, when they would talk about intelligence contractors having a wild West world and we could do whatever we want. And I was like, well, I can't sneeze without going through a client's lawyer. Um, those kind of things. And then, you know, moving forward, it, I, I think I always kind of knew the world. There were two worlds. Because I always tell my wife, I say, you were, you were the Eloys like from the time machine, you know, the, the pretty people up above the earth in the future. And we're, we're like the Morlocks, the, the, the intelligence people and the paramilitaries and everything, keeping the gears running for you. But I always kind of knew there were, there were two worlds and also two versions of reality based on whichever media was reporting it. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. So that was, um, what year was that then that this, this event occurred with this kind of poor reporting of what was going on? Oh, on the Philippines, I'd say that was 2002 and then in through 2003 to about 2011 um, during the, the crux of the, the war on terror. Um, it, all sorts of reporting that made no sense. I mean, people were just guessing or they have sources. There's tons of sources in D.C. So anytime a reporter says, oh, I got an intelligence source. Yeah, I mean, man, you could throw a rock and hit someone with a clearance in D.C. It's like a clearance for every like 2.5 people. Um, yeah. But the problem with those sources is there's no way to verify what they're saying is true. And so you, you get a, anyone who's talking to the media is probably not a good source because they're probably not operational. Um, but as far as seeing it, I also worked in, you gotta be careful how I say this, I worked for a long time in managing the perceptions of populations. So a lot of that was not, you know, not, not, not dropping leaflets, a much larger scale, where you're, you're actually changing, your, your goal is to change the reality of how an entire population sees things. Well, you know, whether like it's, hey, this terror group is actually this, and America is actually this, you know, we're, tr we're, we're trying to manage that perception, which creates the canvas for active and uh, aggressive propaganda. A great example is the vaccine confidence activities that we saw during the pandemic. And I could put a pin in that if you want to uh, circle back to that. But in, in what we saw there really quickly as a summary was the brains of this population were broken and just peppered with different realities of like natural immunity doesn't work or don't get exercise or go outside and you'll stay healthy and safe. I mean, it made no sense. And 
when I looked at that, I started thinking, and I said to Naomi, I said, "This man, this seems really familiar. This seems like a lot of the work I was doing up till the time Osama bin Laden was killed." And it, I, I, I fear that those programs may have been turned over to the HHS when mm-hmm. the war on terror kind of wound down. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. It definitely does feel like we were subject to a propaganda campaign. Now that you mention it, yeah, I'd never thought of. I've never thought of that connection that that probably is what it feels like if you're in a country where you've got some kind of occupation and they're trying to they're trying to give you information but it's it's contrary to your actual experience of the world but someone's trying to still give you that that information to get you to believe it that that is kind of how it would feel right mm-hmm. like you know our our basic observations of the world were completely in contradiction to everything that we were hearing, but we were being told, you know, don't worry, like, you know, we've got this, we're, we'll, we'll manage the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll manage what you think. Don't, don't think for yourself. We'll, we'll think for you and then we'll give you that information. That is exactly how it felt. Yeah, yeah it is. And I, I just want to, I mean, are you familiar with vaccine confidence activities? Uh, not specifically that, but I mean, it sounds it's, like, yeah, go, go ahead. I'll let you explain. Oh, I'm sorry. And it, it could be called something different where you're at or where you're from. Okay. Um, but that's a stated propaganda campaign called vaccine confidence activities. So I first came across it in 2021 during the uh, 2021 CARES Act when that was passed. And I came, I was like vaccine confidence. And then I looked and that goes back to 2014, but it's, they, they, they promote it as marketing, which propaganda perception management really is marketing. Um, it's the same thing same idea but yeah um yeah no this was and then if you follow if you read a u.s a piece of u.s legislation i'm sure just like in the uk you have to actually do the work and go to the that bill that this is based on and you know this this thing that this because they have all these footnotes but i followed those and um and i put this out on twitter where they part of these activities was to actually get the pediatricians and mother groups on board with pushing this vaccine. And even at CDC, they had one where they got the arts involved. So a lot of that graffiti that you see with people wearing masks and everything, that was all propaganda. And it's, uh, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's still on the CDC website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Completely. I mean, there's there's so much of that that stuff that we saw. I mean, we had like influencers that were, we know were getting paid. I mean, some of them mm-hmm. exposed it. They, they'd been offered money. They've been offered like quite large sums of money right. to promote the vaccine and to promote you know all of this this agenda. And some of them, you know, thankfully said no. But there's there's a lot of them who didn't. And the thing is, it's very hard to tell who took the money and who didn't because if you're an influencer a lot of them just bought into it all anyway so they are going to be out there saying hey go and get vaccinated but then there's a lot of them who probably just got paid and we'll never know who those who those people were and you know i mean certainly in the uk we had like advertising campaigns that were just absolutely i've never seen anything like it i mean i don't know if you've seen this um like about half of my my audience is is um British, like from the UK, so like mm-hmm. I think they will they will definitely know what I'm talking about here. But I don't know whether you've seen it. Um, there was these, these like posters, and it said uh, things like "Look into his eyes," you know, and it would be like "Look into his eyes and tell him you did everything to whatever it was, this. whether it was like get whether you've got vaccinated or whether you've you know worn a mask or whatever." And th- there were these images, and they were kind of extremely like they were like red tinted, you know, they were like high contrast, you know, you could see every wrinkle of the person's face. They look. 
Mm. It was just serious, serious, like in your face uh, propaganda. We had an advert as well, like a, you know, like a commercial. Um, I think this one might have been in Scotland and it literally showed like these, it was showed like these particles and they called them COVID-19 particles, which makes no sense if you know anything about vi virology. It's not like there's these like COVID-19 particles and it showed them kind of like rolling in through the windows and stuff. And, you know, like people were talking and it was like getting on the surfaces oh and God. it was almost like those old videos that you see for like, you know, what, like disinfectant adverts or something, but it's like, where they show were they, were they animated sort of like cartoons? They were literally animated, yeah. It was like this animated kind of the cloud of COVID-19 particles. Oh it was just bizarre. I mean, every, just yeah, propaganda just went off, off the scale. I mean, it, I'm still kind of reeling from it now. I don't know about you. Well, the really sick thing about that, I'm, I'm, I'm not reeling from it. I'm just, I'm reeling from how, like, gullible the yeah. smart people are. You know, we're yeah. like, so we were always taught, I mean, we, we were always taught like the left, you know, the liberals, you know, these are your college people, you know, and then the conservatives are, are largely looked at as the, you know, the working class and, and there's nothing wrong with either one, you know, and, um, may they, may they someday get along harmoniously. But, um, what was really sick about what you're just saying, and we saw similar things with like the superhero to get your, be a superhero, get your shot. That's targeting kids. And mm, yeah. a really important point of this, and this, this ties to my, look, my belief is that everything is tied to China and everything is being driven by them. It doesn't mean that people here are not complicit, you know, they're taking the money, but when you see things that target children, to me, it triggers my knowledge of revolutions. And communist revolutions have always targeted children. And so I'm not saying that the vaccine was part of a communist revolution, though it could have been, but the methodology obviously was being influenced, in my opinion, by something coming out of China. Um, even, even the way they were trying to get everyone in this um, harmonized, lockstep, you know, uh, momentum goes counter to anything in a Western democracy. And I remember talking to my friend saying, you know, who do they think we are? We're not the People's Republic of China. We're not just going to do something because you tell us. But it did feel like the program or the, the, you know, the direction seemed very foreign and not really targeted towards a Western audience early on. It seems like it evolved over time, but it does seem like it initially came from something you'd see in the PRC. Yeah, that's totally true. But um, I guess like we, you know, we did see it enacted in the West and then we saw the West completely just go for these ideas. And, you know, it, I wonder honestly whether a lot of this kind of culture war and the kind of wokeism stuff, which had been getting pushed for, you know, a good decade prior, like really kind of forced down our throat type stuff. I wonder whether that was kind of teeing us up for this. It was almost just like chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at our fundamental kind of, you know, ideas and principles and these kind of like Western ideas of, you know, genuine, you know, things like freedom and meritocracy and all these kind mm -hmm. of things rather than, you know, the, the idea that everyone should be the same and should own the same and all the rest of it. Yeah. They weren't really kind of like part of the Western ideology, but then we had this chipping away over time. And then, you know, we get to 2020 and all of a sudden we kind of hit with this thing, which, I guess pushed a lot of people over the edge, but it was a lot of people who were just primed for it. They were they were ready for it. They were ready sure. to have their, you know, I've said this a few times before as well. It was like having their kind of empathy 
weaponized against them. You know, they, they'd been taught to say, you know, I'm just going to care about marginalized groups and that's all I'm going to think about. I'm not going to think about rights. I'm just going to think about who is the most marginalized group. And then suddenly, you know, we roll in with this propaganda campaign saying, Hey, we've got this new marginalized group. It's the, it's the, you know, the unwell. It's the, it's the elderly. It's whatever. It's mm. these people, the vulnerable who now need protecting. And so many people had been just kind of brought into this uh, mindset of, okay, well, I'm immediately going to jump on board with this campaign because they've been taught for decades prior. Hey, you sure. know, like we're all about this. We're all about the, the marginalized group. Yeah. And I, I, I totally, uh, I, I agree and hear everything and see everything you're saying. Um, I, and I, I want to point out that there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, Who's, who are called China watchers or Chinese, you know, China academics, people like General Robert Spaulding or Gordon Chang, and uh, to name a few, Sam Faddis, uh, uh, my friend Frank Gaffney, you know, we see wokeism as just Marxism. I mean, if you really line it up side by side, it's, it's just Marxism. They just, you know, it's a, you know, the, the game's the same, but the players change, but it's, it's Marxism. I mean, that's all it is. Um, where they or if you look at you know a lot of the stuff around race that's you know that's communist revolution stuff they've just replaced the worker with a race and you know that's not to say racism doesn't exist but it's it's not a climate emergency <laughs> you know in this country and so and i i don't mind saying that and um and I challenge anyone who disagrees with me just to bring their receipts and prove me wrong. But the thing is, when, when you, see, you you mentioned something really interesting, and that's how there's all these different things happening. And, you know, that really goes into a concept I've talked about called unrestricted warfare, where you hit, it's a Chinese kind of unofficial propaganda. What I see is how they're fighting against us and how they've been at war with us, the Chinese Communist Party, not the Lao Beijing or the people. They're, they're in a worse position than anyone. But the Chinese Communist Party is at war with the United States. They're not competitors. And they've stated this um, many times and since about 2003. And they follow this, this. They seem to be following this doctrine called unrestricted warfare, which the first rule is um, there are no rules. And the second rule is everything's a battlefield. So they even list them, uh, society or uh, sociological warfare, psychological warfare, society warfare, cultural warfare. All these things you're talking about fit into that mold, even illicit narcotics warfare, where they say to flood an enemy's population with a highly addictive, dangerous drug to overwhelm their public health systems. I hear that. I see fentanyl. When is that something that China have explicitly stated? Then where did you get that statement about flooding, um, oh, flooding so, a place with illicit drugs? Good question. Um, it's 1999 is when these two Chinese colonels published something called Unrestricted Warfare. And it was published by the People's Liberation Army Press. You can actually get it on Amazon. Now I don't know if it was leaked from the Chinese Communist Party or what, or they they let it out. Um, I'd have to go back and look, but it is available. It is a real, it's a real thing. It's a real document. It is translated. Um, but what that is, is that is the entire concept of unrestricted warfare, which was based on these two colonels' observations of Desert Storm and Desert Shield, where they looked at that, and most historians look at that war as the perfect war. It was done in like 44, 48 days, very few casualties on our side, precision bombs. 
well, these these two colonels realize we the the People's Republic of China cannot defeat America kinetically traditionally. So we we need to look at warfare a different way. And they even say something like. The god of war has changed his face. It's very flowery writing, so you know, bring a cup of tea or coffee and you know, take it in small chunks. But the the you know the concept is this: like we we want to be the global hegemon. We will defeat the the per, people standing in our way. Mostly are the United States of America. So to realize the Chinese dream, twenty forty nine, which is an actual thing. Um, I was reading Xi Jinping's, um, uh, I forgot what it is, he's got a million books, but I, I've read them all, where he talks about this. We're going to realize the dream, it's going to be great, and we're going to be at the center of the world. Um, but this all goes into, to, to get there, unrestricted warfare is a major part of that. Um, whether it's regulatory warfare, political warfare, elite capture, these kind of things. And we see they're, they're very real, um, very real. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I've not heard about that, um, that, that book or that document that you were talking about. Yeah. But it almost reminds me of, um, you know, this, th there's this kind of Yuri Bezmenov, um, interview, mm -hmm. I'm sure that you've, you've heard it yeah. and he's talking about, you know, the kind of Soviet, almost like their blueprint. And then you can kind of like see how a lot of that is actually being done in the West now. It sounds like the Chinese equivalent almost. Uh, spot on. And the part about Yuri that I, I, I was, I had never actually seen him uh, or his 60 Minutes specials or any of that till the pandemic. I'd never heard of him. Um, but then, And you realize those are all 1984, which is kind of ironic. That, um, But when you see the, um, the chart he puts forth, I think it's called the Framework of Subversion or Steps to Subversion. Um, it's, it follows almost precisely what we saw in 2020, you know, where with the end part being normalization of, of the society that you subverted. And, and what scares me about that is we are, it's becoming normal to see allegations against the president or his son or some horrible thing that they're doing to the U.S. military. Like, it's not that people aren't taking it seriously, but it's the reason why, you know, like, beating someone up when you're interrogating them doesn't work. You get used to the pain. And what, what scares me about Western populations right now is I think they're getting used to things just sucking. And excuse my blunt phrasing of it, but it's almost like, and, and that's part of the plan. You just beat people down till they're just too tired. Yeah. Um, what I tell people so they don't get there is, go out and find new sources of pain, go find something new and horrible that maybe you can fix, but remind yourself you're alive, remind yourself that these things hurt and remind yourself that these things are not normal. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's almost like as well, part of the, the whole kind of woke campaign is people feeling some kind of guilt for their, you know, their, their background or their heritage or, you know, like where they're from, the country they're from, et cetera. And, this is almost like the new original sin. You know, it's almost like a replacement for, for religion now is, hey, we've, we've got this original sin. You were born white, you were born male, you were born, you know, American, whatever it might be, you know, kind of, you can, you can just kind of keep changing it out, whoever the, the, the person of privilege is at the time. And when you do that to people, maybe people actually, they want their, they want the demise of their own country. There's a part of them that's like, I kind of, I kind of want a destruction of, 
of my own country because you know it's so bad and it's so evil and it's done so many so many bad things and no doubt there are bad things that have happened you know the the war on terror and some of these like imperialist wars they're they're bad and we should um absolutely kind of denounce them and and try to to be do better as nations but to think that we're like really bad nations and everything that we've done and everything that's happened in our kind of cultural history is just like awful and violent is just a complete mm. you know again it's another it's another inversion there's so many good things and many of many of the best things have come from things like ending slavery you know who was the first to end slavery i'm pretty sure it was the the uk i'm pretty sure that that happened i think it was the UK, yeah um again you know you've got a lot of other countries that carried on slavery and many countries in africa continue slavery right up until today that's mm -hmm. still happening right and uh, you know it's been abolished in every every western country so you know to say that we are just inherently evil is first of all not true but i think that saying that over and over again people maybe like you say they just become despondent to your own nation kind of going down a dark path you say oh well you know it's not worth defending anyway yeah and i i think you know you make a great observation i think a lot of people you know do get there like oh, maybe we do maybe we are horrible but what i always you know and this is why history is so important and this is why doing the work is so important like thank god we have channels like Rumble and Getter and mm -hmm. where you can see the other sides of things. Epic Times has done great reporting, yeah. um, but you have to do the work. Like I went to uh, my um, a, a former family member <laughs> and uh, I asked her, I said, are you aware of what's going on with this? And I was picking up my son and she said, uh, no. I said, where do you get your news? She said, from my iPhone, <laughs> like the, the alerts. I said, okay, so you're getting your, your news from Apple, which that iPhone is mainly produced in China, um, or you're getting your news from NBC or ABC or CBS, or these, they all get news from AP and Reuters. And here's the problem. AP, Reuters, NBC, have all signed memorandums of cooperation with Xinhua Newsnet out of China, which is the actual ministry of propaganda. It's the official ministry for propaganda. Our major news sources have memorandums of cooperation to coordinate headlines and coverage with our enemy's propaganda ministry. So if that's where people are getting their news, they're not getting news. They're getting fiction. They're getting spin. And that's not to say that you know, people don't, everyone spins something. It's, it's hard to keep human bias out of, out of news, but this is straight up lying. And so going back to what I was saying, it's people have to put in the work and they have to look for the truth. And, you know, sometimes that truth is taking five sources and seeing where they all intersect. Um, but I always tell people, go to antique bookstores and get books on history. Don't get anything that was published in the last five years. And so one of our favorite things to do when we have time is we'll see an antique bookstore and I, I scoop up every encyclopedia or history book from around the world that I can. We have a huge library. That's great. Yeah. Something that I've, um, well, I've been into it uh, for definitely over the past, um, you know, probably like five years or so, but especially mm. so recently is I, don't, I, I never know whether to pronounce it Mises or Mises, but it's like Mises dot, uh, I think it's dot org or... Mm. Let me just check it. Let me just check it. But th this is great. It's got like um, mysis.org, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. My sis dog, M-I-S, uh, M-I-S-E-S. And it's just full of like really good, you know, it's got like a lot of articles and things on there, but it's also like books and it's got a lot of stuff about kind of hard money, you know, um, oh. Austrian economics, you know, it talks a lot about libertarianism. You can get all kinds of stuff on there. And I, I just really think I like reading that kind of stuff. I, I don't know. It just feels like it's just from a different place. It's just completely, it's genuinely kind of inspired writing. And, you know, mm-hmm. and to be fair, I don't, I wouldn't say like I read a lot of modern stuff, but you've got to be very, very picky about where you get your stuff. Exactly like you say, like yeah. the easy thing, you can almost just, you go on like Amazon or wherever it is and look up some political books and you go into the political section, see what it recommends you. Almost all of it, you can just immediately just throw out. You know, you have to really dig to find some good stuff. Then again, you know, I, in my view, I think that everything that's happened recently uh, since 2020, I think a lot of a lot of people have been in, inspired to start writing now. Mm, um, I'm yeah. really dying to read. Um, was it is it Michael Sanger? Oh yeah, he, he's a friend of he, mine. He, he t- he, he's a friend. Of, okay, great. We'll have to talk about that because I'd love to get Michael on the podcast as well. Yeah. But like he he's written a written a written a book which I've I'm really um, keen to check out as well. Like all about the China connection and Snake there's oil. other people who just s- Snake Oil. I think it's is called, that the name of something like that? Yeah, Snake Oil. Right, I, I've read it. It's good. And I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure your wife has also written a a book as well recently. Is that right? Yeah. So she wrote the bodies of others, um, which is really um, the bodies of others a full social critique of that time uh, from her own experience and our uh, experience um, to what she observed and what she saw and you know understanding that she's you know, been around the world and we spent so many months in Oxford when we were dating and while she was finishing up her thesis. And, um, it's a great book. And, um, it, it really, I, I think what, for me, what it really, and I, you know, I did some fact checking on it for her, of course. And, but, um, what really got me about the book was her, her ability to transcend different social classes and show you the different attitudes based on the social class. So it starts where we're at a uh, pretty, pretty rich party um, and in Manhattan where we used to live down in the West Village and to how it looks on the outside. So between the both of us, and especially with our courtship and getting to know each other, we've brought two worlds together in our own household. And so we've both been able to see you know what things are like on either side from the very elite to the very non-elite but elite in their own right and how every she really shows in that book how the ignorance among the classes of each other was used to manipulate them especially the way the elite were manipulating you know the working class or for for example so definitely a good book and I would say that if she wasn't my wife, um, but this to me it was my favorite book of hers that I, I, I've read, and she also has another one that came out called the Pfizer Document Analysis, um, and we could go into that later. But it's basically right now, let's like in the book, there's 69 adverse events reports from the vaccine, um, which are based on the papers that Pfizer turned into the FDA that the FDA tried to have embargoed for 55 years. Um, they got them released and they, they've been analyzing all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. That is the, 
all that that Pfizer stuff is absolutely crazy. Is, did the embargo did it stand or did it? I thought it got struck it got, down in court. So uh, I think it's Peter McCullough's group or a group he was involved with. He's a you know one of the best doctors in the world who was called obviously a quack after he questioned the vaccine. Uh, he's a good friend, and he um, I think he and a bunch of doctors uh, got the uh, Supreme Court, in, I believe in Texas, to force the FDA to release those documents because what it is is called the post-marketing report. So when a new drug comes on, the the company that makes it turns in this post-marketing report and to the FDA. And in that you have all the adverse events, you know, all the problems, all the good things. It's, it's, it's a big document. Uh, It's like, in this case, I think this one's like 55,000 pages and um, that's very standard and it's always public. It's always public. And so for some reason, they wanted to embargo this one. And I, I, I think the buried lead here is the defendant in that case was not Pfizer. It was the FDA, our own Food and Drug Administration. Wow. OK, so the F- FDA is doing the bidding of Pfizer completely directly then. You know, I would say absolutely. You know, um, that is more than just opinion, I just haven't seen them dissent on anything Pfizer wants. Yeah. And not to mention Scott Gottlieb, who's uh, on the executive board at Pfizer, used to be the FDA director. Coincidence? Yeah, well, I think there's a few others like that, aren't there? That, that it seems to be a bit, bit of a kind of revolving door between those organizations. It really so, is. Yeah. So just just zooming back out because I want to I, I want to get into the mm. the China stuff with you and I'm kind of conscious that we we we've touched on it a couple of times but not really gone deep. So if you wouldn't mind, could you kind of go into the WHO and the China connection? Because I heard you speaking on mm. I heard you speaking on the, on this on, a, on another um, interview that you did. I think it was the one with Man in is it Man in America? The, yeah, the yeah, Seth, yeah. Uh, I think it might have been that one. And you you went into it. And I the way that you articulated, you know, China and the WHO and everything that's happening with kind of One Health mm-hmm. was just yeah, it definitely kind of like opened my mind to some some uh, some new aspects to that. So yeah, could you just kind of highlight? Uh, or, sure. Yeah, just give us like your take on that. Well, uh, you know, just zooming out first, what everyone saw was. Uh, Dr. Tedros Gabriesis doing the bidding, it seemed, of the Chinese Communist Party at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, praising them for their lockdowns, praising them for their handling of it, kind of running interference so no one could investigate the outbreak, and then eventually relenting. But then when the WHO relented, they sent in Peter Dajic and the gang, who actually were at the Wuhan lab funding it. Um, to investigate the outbreak, of course, we know which conclusion they're going to come to because they don't want to incriminate themselves. Um, and that, you know, and then so there's that. But additionally, um, the member countries of the WHO, most of them are in the Belt and Road Initiative, which is the big loan program, I guess you could say for you know, that's oversimplifying it. But this one, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government lends out. Uh, massive amounts of money to countries that, oh, I don't know, their infrastructure collapsed, they need some money, it's these massive loans. But there's catches. If they don't make their payments, China can take your airport or your port, those kind of things. So most of the countries in the WHO are 
are already signed on to that, so they're already indebted to China. Now, when we get down into the WHO and this, what this One Health is, okay, so the WHO currently, and I'm not a WHO expert, but I know enough about this part. I, I do consider myself a One Health expert as much as one can be, but um, they've been trying to push forward the WHO, this one, this pandemic treaty. And uh, the longer, there's a longer name of it, but it's like CA plus or something. It's two parts. There's an actual treaty um, that will allow the WHO to essentially become a supranational power to call the next pandemic or global health emergency, decide what that is, how long it lasts, and should that be called, should that be declared, then you fall under the rules of the pandemic treaty if you're a member country of the WHO, whether that's lockdowns, whether that's mass inoculations, who knows, but a big part is surveillance, surveilling outbreaks. Those rules are all based on something called a One Health approach. Okay, and this is a the basic ideology there is man, beast, bird, plant, the environment, um, our, our health is all interconnected, so we should be looked at holistically. That's fine. That's, that's like the 100-year-old definition of One Health, which has been around for a long time. It used to be called One Medicine. But it's changed into this all-encompassing thing saying you have to um, treat people ahead of time. You have to surveil communities under One Health. You should change your land use practices. You should change your land allocation for equitable outcomes. It's just more, it's just grown into this huge, it's gone from basically being the Ten Commandments to being a 2,000 page, uh, you know, very, very um, defined uh, framework, if you will. Um, and I always, I was telling, and uh, you know, my, my friends who were asking about it, I said, this is kind of like One Health used to be like, a, hey, we're America and we're free, you know, like a, a battle cry. Now it's become we're America, we're free, and this is how you're going to live your life. And this is now it has nothing to do with America, but as an example. So the WHO, it, they're using this One Health framework to basically have power and control over every country. So th let me try to put this in. It's, and I do apologize because there's so many definitions coming from, from the WHO and these international bodies. I think they've intentionally made it ambiguous. Um, but really what it is is it's kind of like a pre-installed system of governance. So if there's a pandemic treaty and then uh, they declare a global health emergency, and, and keep that phrase in mind, it's pretty broad, um, we automatically go into these One Health-based uh, rules and regulations and laws, if you will. And with no mention of the fact that that completely subverts our constitutions, our, you know, our sovereign uh, systems of governance. Um, there's no mention of that. The WHO has said, no, we're not going to subvert anything. Well, they're right. They're not because it's already in our governments. We're going to do it to ourselves by accepting this treaty. Yeah. Okay. So 
with this, so America's presumably signed on to this, to the, the, um, the One Health Treaty. Uh, the pan, yes, yeah, so the pandemic treaty, uh, it's not that you're signing on, it's like you're not dissenting. Okay, so yeah. basically the dissent would be an exit from the WHO. That, that would have to be, well, no, you can dissent on the treaty, but there's... Ah, okay. If, if the way it was described in, in Dr. Uh, Kat Lindley and Nor Bin Laden and uh, James uh, Rogowski, uh, these, they're a lot more versed in the actual inner workings. And Michelle Bachman, a former congresswoman, she's really well versed on the inner workings. Uh, I'd say her and Nor Bin Laden. Um, but the way, I, as I understand it, is as long as no country dissents next May when it's voted on or earlier, then it goes through. Boom, we're in this pandemic treaty. Like, for instance, we're, in, we're under international health regulations now that have been around since 2005. Uh, the pandemic treaty is going to expand even those. It just, it's giving the WHO way more power. Like, the, you've never had this kind of power in one body before. And now that we know the control that the Chinese Communist Party has over the WHO and its member countries. It's almost like China is pre-installing the government that will be there when they waltz in and become the global hegemon and, and defeat, you know, probably without even firing a shot, these countries. Okay, wow. That is, um, yeah, that's big. That's really, really big. So I guess, how do you think uh, these, the actual um, instructions or these prescriptions for the the WHO's One Health Treaty. How is it that that um, gives China any kind of advantage as opposed to just disadvantaging every country um, all the same? Well, because um, first of all, it gives them an advantage um, in terms of if it goes through. Because let's say you want to control something. Well, you know what? Call a pandemic global health emergency and make sure everyone's locked down. Um, make sure no one comes out. There's things in this pandemic treaty or in One Health frameworks that talk about gun violence, that talk about racism, that talk about... So anything can be an emergency. So let's go back kinetically. Let's say there's a Red Dawn situation. Like, I don't think that is a reality where they parachute in and take over our country. Uh, and again, I don't think that's how anything would go down. I think that that would be a, a failure. But... You never know. Um, the thing is, so let's say one country, China invades. They want the United States to invade the United States. Wouldn't it be great if when they got there, no one has guns and everyone's locked down? It makes it very easy. Because the biggest thing in, in the military that when I used to do these exercises in Louisiana, um, it was called JRTC. We do these like it really was terrible because it was hot and very uncomfortable. But we would do these actual wars against a, a smaller force. And so we were going in there occupying this fake country, but we had real guns and re like lasers on our guns so we wouldn't shoot each other. But one of the biggest parts of that was crowd control, controlling the local population now that we've descended upon it, and which is ma mainly the role of the MPs, but it, it was a big part of it, like, because it's, it burns up so many resources controlling all these people. Well, why not get a country to do it for you, the host country to do it for you? You save a lot of time and energy. Um, One Health with the surveillance component, which is a big part of it, as well as 
this 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 mention of land and food constantly in one health controlling food controlling how food is grown land reallocation these things all sound like eminent domain to me and what a great way to eliminate the risk of people in rural areas who hunt and have guns and are self-sufficient well what a great way to get rid of that threat because i'll say this final thing if i were a hostile nation wanting to invade america for instance we we have one of the largest standing armies in the world and i don't mean the u.s military i mean armed u.s civilians makes up one of the largest standing armies in the world if you were going to count it as an army yeah do you, do you know what that number is do you know like what percentage of, of americans or what number of americans are, are armed it varies um it varies because most people own more than one gun and i think it's done okay. by gun sales i've heard anywhere from 5 million to 50 million. Uh, I think 50 million is probably high. Um, but I do know there was a huge increase in gun ownership from 2020 to 2023. And that's across yeah. uh, Democrats and Republicans. Um, yes. But yeah, so it's but it's a very big number. Uh, but it also depends on where you live. Like I live in mainly in northern New York, um, in the Hudson Valley which everyone up here has guns because everyone hunts and it's, you know, it's remote. You, you have, I have bears in my, <laughs> I had a bear steal my garbage can and have a smorgasbord out there in the woods. It's on my YouTube video. It's hilarious. But we have bears and coyotes and, uh, you know, we have wild animals. We also have people, okay? We have people coming into these, these areas, being transplanted in these areas since this immigration flood. They're being transplanted up here, and we don't know who they are. And people don't want to be alone in the middle of the woods at their cabin without some form of protection. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when it comes to the, the BLM stuff and everything we saw there, I mean, that I, I don't... I haven't looked too much into it, but it seemed very much like a orchestrated psyop as well. Like, yeah. do you know if there, if there's anything related to China there with BLM? Well, yeah, I, I would say there's there's several things. Um, BLM and I and I have to kind of couple BLM and Antifa together because they were joined at the hip. Um, I was just looking behind me. I mean, the BLM is like right out of the Cultural Revolution. Um, and so is Antifa, right down to the costumes, um, the the you know um, the 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 mask. I mean, so many of them had the hammers and sickles um, on their signs. Uh, so what that is is in the Cultural Revolution, they went after the the revolutionaries at the urging of Mao or the command of Mao, went after uh, entrepreneurs, small businesses, historical statues, history the arts, schools, they went after all of that because the past needed to be destroyed. That's exactly what we saw with BLM slash Antifa. The past needs to be destroyed. Uh, the comparisons, it's almost what I'm reading um, and I'm constantly reading or rereading about, especially the Cultural Revolution, because it's almost the blueprint for what we saw. And now, more to your point, there is an organization called, I believe it's called Liberty Hill, um, which is the logistics arm of the uh, BLM. Liberty Hill, the founder of that, and I believe the founder of BLM, I mean, but the Liberty Hill uh, founder is a sworn Marxist 
who I believe may have worked at the Chinese embassy in San Francisco. I also have it on good word that the reason the Houston embassy was closed by President Donald Trump was they had actual um, People's Republic of China soldiers working um, in the embassy coordinating a lot of these protests. And you notice these protests are um, really um, coordinated, as you said, but the signs are all the same. The signage is completely the same. And um, it's, and even Naomi said, who came, you know, she's part of Occupy Wall Street and all that, one of the, one of the organizers, I believe. But even she said to me, she's like, one thing about the left, because, you know, she's at the time considered herself the left, the left. She said, we're never this organized. She's like, we're, we're passionate, but we're never, the, I've never seen organization like this. And I said, this is military precision right here. This is highly organized. Um, one place I'd say for any citizen detect is if you want to look at how it was coordinated and harmonized, go to opencollective.com. Read what they offer on opencollective.com, and you'll see how you can start a protest from anywhere in the world in America with a subscription-based model, and they'll even provide you protesters, and they'll send your sign designs to the local Kinkos for... Um, you know, printing out so your protesters can get it. Look at the it's hashtag SCOTUS6. Um, that's, that was all coordinated on Open Collective. And uh, I'm going to go into that in a sub stack, but that's a huge, huge way it was done. And that's scary because they don't care where the money comes from. Anyone can get a membership on OpenCollective.com or Act Blue or Action Now or any of them. Wow, that's amazing. I've never, I've never heard that opencollective.com okay yeah that sounds wild i mean it's like yeah state-sponsored protest in anywhere in the world yeah by the way do you, i don't know if you wanted to see to your dog or anything if yeah. you wanted to do you want to take a take a take a break Can for a we, second yeah, I'll I, got, I think i just yeah, have to yeah, open all, the door i forgot we're not no worries, no worries okay great i'll be right no back. no we're good yeah we're good so if you're a regular listener to the show then you might remember a recent episode that i did with alex zek which was episode 46, called The Viral Myth and Evolving Beyond the Paradigm of Deception. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I really recommend you go and check it out. We talk about a lot of interesting ideas regarding virology and illness and how we can take control over our own health. And more recently, someone from Alex's team got in touch with me about an educational event that they're going to be doing, which I definitely think is going to interest a lot of you guys. So it's called The End of COVID and it's an online education designed for the way in which we consume content today. Similar to a podcast, they've recorded over 100 hours of interviews, presentations, and conversations with prominent voices from the likes of David Icke, Kelly Brogan, Amanda Vollmer, Tom Cohen, Andrew Kaufman, Christian Northrup, and many, many more. This event launches on July the 11th. I had a look through the program, and as well as these very prominent guests, a few that jumped out to me were Alex Zek himself, Jesse Zurowell and Patrick Henningsen from TNT Radio, Dr. Melissa Sell, Nick Hudson, and Etienne de la Bote Squared. So if this sounds like something that interests you, please do use my referral link. That's theendofcovid.com slash ref slash 606. That's theendofcovid.com slash ref slash 606. That will be in the show notes anyway. And on that website, you can check out all about it. There's a trailer there. There's a bunch of information. You can see all the speakers and see what the event's about. And if you do decide that this is going to be a value for you and you end up signing up to get access to the program, please do use my referral code and that will help to support my content as well. All right, back to the episode. Yeah, the open collective thing is crazy, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's crazy. I've never heard of it. I'm going to have to have a look at that. I actually got hired to do a a job on these uh, Supreme Court justice protests. Um, I got hired by a big law firm to look into the Ruth Sentus thing. And um, look into the what? Have you heard of Ruth Sentus? No. So Ruth Gator Ginsburg, who it's named after, these are the protesters who came out in force after Roe versus Wade was overturned, which is the oh, abortion. Yes. Yeah. And um, you might have seen the uh, Handmaid's Tale costumes, the red cloaks and um, protesting. They had like the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Handmaid's Tale, but um, they had the red cloaks oh, okay. and, you know, the. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I didn't actually see the see anything from the protest, though. Oh, well, that's. An- I know. I, I, heard, I heard of them. I just didn't actually watch any of the footage. Oh, they were huge. They were outside the Supreme Court justices houses. One Supreme Court justice, Roberts, I believe, was targeted for assassination by a, a trans protester and they intercepted him the secret service did this guy had knives guns and rubber shoes he was he was outside the guy's house all caused by these protests they were all coordinated on open collective and did you say you were hired to do something for for was it open collective or no i was hired by a law firm to look into the source of these uh, what they called hashtag SCOTUS 6 protests. These protests against the uh, Supreme Court justices. It was a private law firm in D.C. that's pretty big. Uh, I don't know who their client was, but that's what they hired me to do. And it really took me down uh, that rabbit hole, and I couldn't believe it. But the takeaway was this. Anyone in the world can, with a few clicks of a button start some major upheavals in this country especially wow that's crazy so if you got enough money if you're a billionaire just go on to opencollective.com and start yourself a revolution get 29.99 a month it's subscription based anyone can do it but don't you sure but surely you need the money to pay the the protesters right like the people they thought of that too what (laughs) open collective also offers is fiscal hosting which is if you want to be a nonprofit, but you're not a nonprofit and you want to collect donations and people want to write those off on their taxes, if you're not a nonprofit, you need a fiscal sponsor. Well, you can pay for that too. Open Collective will be your fiscal sponsor for your cause. And they'll promote out, they'll MailChimp out your uh, request for money and donations. And it's so easy to make donations. And so the donation money, most of the causes on Open Collective are from donations, and they, they reap the donations. Wow, Brian, this is really blowing my mind. <laughs> so wait, okay, how about this then? Why don't we all get on Open Collective? Let's get all of the Freedom people on there, and then let's let's do our own ones. We can use I've Open Collective, we can get them to put out a campaign. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Johnny, I've been telling people this. I'm like, stop whining, stop tweeting. And people are like, how do we fight this? How do we, you, you nailed it, you nailed it. People have been saying to me, like, how do we fight this? How do we fight this? I'm like, that's the easy part. They have show, they, they've shown you how to fight it. Yeah. They, they've given you the blueprint. Yeah. Use it. They even have the tools set up. And you know what? You go on there and you just say some name of your cause that, like, won't raise any alarms. I'd recommend you don't go on there and say, you know, uh, screaming Eagle Liberty now. You probably, they might not accept your, but, you know, just put something very innocuous, like, um, Open dialogues, <laughs> you know, open dialogues, yeah. free growth, who knows? But whatever it is, you, you've nailed it. Like, 
we have to drain that money, you know, and even if you don't use it to get people on the street, get a bunch of people on there just draining that donation money, putting it towards a good cause, of course, because the people donating normally don't know. But, you know, just drain it because people get sick of donating after a while, too. And you can dry up the resources that way. But, yeah, I totally agree with you. People should be using it. I've been screaming this. I'm like, stop reinventing the wheel. They didn't invent this yeah. stuff. They just inherited a government. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. it. But then again, I mean, we did see, especially during the Canadian protests, you know, we all tried to use, I can't remember, what was it? Um, was it GoFundMe or? Yeah, GoFundMe, mm-hmm. right? And uh, they, you know, they basically kind of like went against the cause in the end. They tried to seize the money. They, I don't know whether they did it on their own volition or whether it was a government telling them what to do. But it seems like as soon as we think, ah, well, there's a powerful tool that's in favor of the people now, we can use it. Well, all of a sudden that powerful tool goes away and all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, sorry. You know, it only, you know, it works for people of a different cause. When you guys try and use it, we're going to close you down. Sure. And, and I, yes, of course, there are always those couple steps ahead. But I always say this as well. Again, the architecture's there how to win this. And first of all, it's done at the local level whether that's a protest like you just described. Um, and I saw that, but when I was doing counter-stalking for people who were being stalked, um, uh, I would always tell them, I'm like, the stalker, all of their energy is focused on you. So you have to give that stalker multiple fires, multiple things to focus that energy on. So I think the biggest mistake, and God bless them, I've, I donated, and I was the first to say it out loud, like, come and shut me down. Um, but we have to do these protests and continue to, but we have to coordinate. The biggest problem I see on our side of this fight, and that that is the side of liberty and what's good and freedom, and um, we're not coordinated. They are. And yeah, again, they inherited a, a government framework, but we are not coordinated. And now you're seeing things on the, you know, let's just call it the freedom side, of people like haggling over who's right about some theory like i got attacked and they're like oh china's just a distraction and oh it's pfizer's a distraction oh it's the military i don't care i don't care why the guy is breaking into my house i just care that he's breaking into my house and i'm going to stop him so what i'm saying the stalker example is instead of doing a trucker protest and then doing a whatever other protest these leaders have to get together, these protest leaders, and coordinate and do simultaneous protests, create multiple fires for the apparatus to have to deal with. And you're, you're, making, you're creating multiple fronts in this battle. On the subject of protests, what's your uh, views on Jan 6 and everything that happened there? Oh, I think that was totally I think that was totally orchestrated or allowed to happen. I think there were actual riots. Um, obviously, I think, look, anytime you get a bunch of people together, regardless of their political affiliation, um, especially in these yeah. heated times, you're going to have some, 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 you know, rabble rousers, whatever. But what I really saw there was, um, and we saw it in real time. Uh, my wife was actually on a uh, podcast interview with a gentleman in Canada, and yeah, I was doing her lighting and everything, and my it's a friend of ours and he's like, well, forget about us. Look what's going on in your capital. I'm like, what's going on on our capital? Cause I, I don't know on TV. And I looked it up. I'm like, Oh my God, 
but right away I was thinking, this looks really weirdly fake, like um, very theatric. And um, I also noticed too, like they were showing the same footage over and over and it's almost like the talking points were there. And I remember early on, and I still have, because I record everything. As an investigator, I record everything. And I remember seeing the, the uh, you know, the mayor of D.C. turning down the assistance that was offered by the president at the time. Um, and it, it's almost like they wanted it. To, they, knew, they knew some people were going to show up and probably cause some trouble. But that, that was happening everywhere. I mean, look at, you know. Antifa counter protesters that that was nothing new of course sir there's always a protest at every inauguration there's always a protest at the capitol always i used to live right down the street um that's nothing new but this one they really really wanted this to be go overboard so to me it reminded me a lot of what i've seen with other countries where they have a peaceful protest and they insert people in there to to make it more violent and that's what I see the Ray Epps as, is this guy, Epps, I've done some deep research on him. He, he kind of disappeared for a while. He had some gun charges, but I take one look at that guy, and he looks like every single military leader I ever had. The gait, the way he holds himself, the way he talks. You know, and, but not only that, he did have gun charges. He did have criminal charges in the past that do seem to have just kind of gone away. So at a minimum, I'd say confidential informant turned rabble rouser by the Democrats. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't like followed up too much on it, but I know there's a lot of stuff going around and it just seems very, very strange to me. I mean, I've seen videos of where it seems like doors are being opened for them. It was like, yeah. it was like they were just given like a, a free, you know, it's, it's not very easy to enter a building like that. You know, like it's supposed to be one of the most secure buildings you know, in the entire country well, and it, the ease of which they went yeah. in seems very, very. Did you see, peculiar. I'm sorry to cut you off. Did you see the Tucker Carlson videos that he showed? I think I did see one of them. I'm not sure. Did he do a series or? Yeah, um, it was like two and then they shut it down. Um, right. But he shows exactly what you're like. They had all new footage and this was from, you know, this was released through FOIA Freedom of Information Act. And you see they're walking the, um, what's his uh, I forgot the buffalo guy um, yeah the, the shaman there um, they're walking him like you, you see a, a capital cop walking him past the other capital police who don't even look up like they're surprised to see a guy wearing buffalo horns I mean it's it reminded yeah. me of like someone walking uh, a guitarist to the stage to do his show like they didn't even look up and not only that, they show like um, Brian, um, was it Sesnick, I think, the gentleman who died. He, he, he was reportedly right. killed from getting hit with a fire hydrant. And uh, he actually died of a, a brain aneurysm like two days right. later, which was a, an ongoing, apparently medical um, condition he had. And, you know, all due respect to him, his family and the dead. But. Um, the video that Tucker showed was um, him walking around after he had been reportedly brained by this this fire hydrant. Um, okay. There's okay. just too much. I mean, this is like there's just such a big, I would say, preponderance of evidence that shows that at a minimum, this isn't everything people say it is. It certainly wasn't an insurrection because it would have been the yeah. first unarmed insurrection in history. There was not one firearm confiscated from 
the January 6th rioters or protesters. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that pretty much is, is in line with the way that I saw it. I'm, I'm kind of at the point now when these things happen and, you know, I don't really have time to like investigate everything, but I just, I just assume that it's bullshit until, until proven otherwise. Like, That's good you know, there's no it. point in, in ascribing any kind of uh, value to this stuff that you see in in the news or, or saying oh you know well i'm just going to assume that that's truth like that used to be the way that i did things before 2020 probably yeah go ahead sorry i don't know if that came through she um yelled down on let her know i'm still on is that good that's okay you just got a guest appearance by naomi wolf <laughs> <laughs> Bring her in. <laughs> she, she's good. Uh, let me see. Still <laughs> on. Okay. Um, I'll say one thing to your point. Yeah. Um, you're right, and that's that, and that's how I look at it. It's all bullshit until you know. And a good way for people to determine more precisely if news is bullshit. I, I've come up with this 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 really sophisticated method. If it's fact checked, <laughs> yeah, then go the opposite direction. Yeah, they're the ones that you know, isn't it? If you see it's been fact checked, you're like, okay, well, I know that that one is definitely true. I know that's absolutely right. true. If it's been fact checked, whatever has been claimed that they're fact checking is true. Now we can. Now I don't have to spend my time looking well, into it. Well, it's also a hot lead. As an investigator, I'm like, that's a hot lead. That's the thing mm. they don't want you to believe. Is if it's on yeah. fact check, it's an important topic to them. And so, fact check, fact check away. I, I love those guys. They've been so useful to me. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about the Open Collective uh, mm. step before. And I think early in the conversation, um, you know, you mentioned about how kind of big tech is all in on this stuff as well. They're very in line with Agenda 2030. Why do you think that is? What are the incentive structures that have led to that? Money, uh, definitely money. And I, I don't see it as, um, and I, I don't think you do either. I don't see it as a plan that everyone got together and then executed their different parts. I see it more as opportunism. So for instance, if you see, what has the Biden administration pushed a lot um, as a result of the pandemic is broadband access for everyone. What has the pandemic pushed? Um, stay at home. What are people doing at home? They're in front of their screens. Mm -hmm. uh, shut down toy stores. Naomi covers this actually in bodies of others. How in the UK, I believe, some classic toy stores closed, but there was an Amazon code that you could go to to buy that same toy right um money i mean they're making a lot of money on it plain and simple and you could just look at the stock charts and and, and see um now it, you bring up an interesting point because the <laughs> i tweeted i retweeted this out the other day um do you know, do you know there's actually a portfolio of stocks when people are investing in china and they call them the bat companies no, I did not know that. Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Okay. Speaking of big tech. So for them, I think it's all about making money. I even believe everything the Chinese Communist Party does, and they're behind a lot of the big tech. It's about making money um, because people will say, oh, they want to control us. I always say, probably. But why? Why, why does big tech want to control you? So they can control where your money flows. It's the reason why casinos 
give their employees free meals. So they sit there, eat a steak, maybe gamble a little. They want to control where the money flows, plain and simple. Yeah, I j- although I do feel like, I don't know, I guess maybe I don't want to get too much into like the ESG stuff, but I do feel like that is almost like a, a buffer for them to, so they can kind of do things which are fundamentally kind of nonsensical when it comes to actually earning money, but still get a return on that. It's like, well, we'll put it in the ESG category because like, mm. for instance, you know, um, like my last conversation I just, I just had, like, I've just had it removed from YouTube. I've got my second strike. So now I'll probably abandon YouTube altogether. <laughs> Won't put my content on there. I'm sure there's a lot of other people yeah. who are just like, well, we're just going to leave it alone. Like there's just so much content now you can't get on YouTube. I mean, it used to be that you didn't need a subscription to anything else. You didn't need to be on any of the platform. You could be on YouTube and get everything you wanted. Well, now YouTube's not enough. Now it's like, well, I'll have YouTube if I want to learn something. You know, maybe I want a tutorial about something. I want to learn how to bake a cake, whatever it is. I'll have YouTube for that. But if I want to have any real conversation, anything that's talking about, you know, anything like close to the edge, it's got to be on another platform. Now, I personally think that that is tanking YouTube's... um, I mean, I know that it's, it's hard to tell because YouTube is all part of Alphabet now and mm-hmm. it's kind of a series of companies and it's difficult to tell how much damage that's doing to them. But there's no doubt in my mind that that's knocked a couple of percentage points you know, off their, off their stock price like this year, whatever. Now, but then you've got the ESG stuff, which is like, okay, well, what's the counterbalance for that? Will these companies just have to say, well, if we're woke enough, then we can at least get the ESG brownie points, right? So it's almost like they're trying to do this weird form of kind of like, maybe similar to China, I'm not sure. It's almost like a state capitalism type idea where it's Mm. like, you know, you can have a private company, you can do all this stuff, but, you know, we've got this ESG stuff, which, you know, we're going to use that as a way for you to kind of like do what we think is right, do what the centralized kind of controllers, the central planners think is right. And then that allows them to, or maybe not even allows them, maybe incentivizes them to do things like censorship. I don't know what you think about that. I, I've thought a lot about uh, the ESG thing, and in particular, Target and and Bud Light, and you know, yeah. so inorganic, isn't it? Like that can't have been like someone sitting down and just making rationalizations. Decision. There must have been thinking, we want the ESG brownie points for this campaign. I think it's that and something else. So, what I think, and you know, we were talking the other day, and I was at my friend's house, uh, Josh. Uh, he's he's a he's a great guy. And a, a, Great freedom fighter. Um, but he's, he's got this group of us that get together, you know, we talk about all these things and they, they go deep. They go into the Rothschilds and everything. I, I stay here, but, um, yeah. So the ESG, I think that's twofold. And I think this is where everyone has to relearn the term useful idiot. It's a difference between Western and Chinese thought on war. So the Western and the capitalist thought is we're going to make some money off this ESG thing. You know, we're getting funded, um, you know, because if you make certain ESG points, you actually do get kickbacks. Um, so we're going to we're going to make some money on this. But then behind that, pushing ESG is the Chinese Communist Party to some degree who um, they're they're killing American brands. They're 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 destroying. You know, Target is an American brand. Bud Light is a quintessential American brand. Budweiser. Um and that's destroying, that's, that's just a continuation of destroying our culture and history. Um, whereas the useful idiots, the, ES, the people pushing the ESG on our end and the companies buying into it, they're thinking transactionally. They're thinking in one or two or three or four year terms. The, the Chinese think in terms of dynasties and generations. And 
so that I think that's what's happening is this unseen hand is pushing these things, which are destroying culture and harmonizing the world into a communist mentality where there are no individuals or are no genders. And again, if you go to the, rev, the communist rev, uh, cultural rev, revolution in China back in the um, you know, 60s and early 70s, the whole thing was about severing ties with the parents, which a lot of these, uh, you know, these things you see, these trans initiatives, for lack of a better term, you see where they're, they have programs in some states where the kids don't have to get the consent of the parent to get a, a transition therapy or worse. That's severing the tie. That is making the state the parent at that point there, which is right out of the pages of Chinese communist history or every communist revolution history. So w what do I think about ESG? I think it's a dumb idea for the business because as we've seen, Target lost like billions in market share. Bud Light just got destroyed. I don't know anyone who will drink a Bud Light anymore. And if you go to most gas stations where they sell Bud Light, it's, you know, it's a low end beer, but uh, it's a, it's an American tradition. No one's drinking Bud Light. And I was actually at a, I was at a, a Hell's Angels, um, like just funny, but it was a Hell's Angels uh, party slash baptism for this little baby. Um, and <laughs> okay. they're, you know, they're great guys, uh, great guys and girls in, in, in um, the, the chapter near me, but they invited us and we went and um, they had a cooler full of Bud Light. Someone had brought Bud Light because not everyone's tuned into all these things happening. And one of the guys says to me, this big, big dude, he's just like, hey, man, there's no more beer left. Do you think anyone's going to get mad if I drink a Bud Light? And I said, I'd put it in a red cup if I were you. <laughs> so, but that's, oh, wow. It's not bad. Their, their, their <laughs> attempt to change a culture changed a culture against Bud Light. And now yeah, it's like yeah, a joke yeah. if you're drinking Bud Light. So, right. yeah, yeah, to your okay. point, it's just like it's a bad idea for businesses. They say go woke, go broke. It's turning out to be true. And uh, really quickly, I wanted early on you had said um, we were talking about the wokeness and all that. And I, I got the sense that. And this is probably location. I'm just curious. Are you hearing where you're at? About the kind of the victories that have happened over the woke culture. Are you hearing about like the Dodgers protests with like the 5,000 Catholics and any of that? Um, no, I've not heard about that. I've not heard about that. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously like I'm on Twitter and I see stuff, but I wouldn't say that I'm kind of like keeping a close eye on it, but yeah, I've, yeah. I've definitely never heard that before. So they, they marched. What's it about? Yeah. So what happened was the Dodgers versus San Francisco, I think is a, I don't know baseball that well, so but it was basically Los Angeles versus San Francisco, which, as I understand it, baseball is a huge rivalry. Sold out stadium every time. My 11 year old, he was like, oh, yeah, dad, of course. You know, I don't know. But um, what happened was they were doing this um, sisters of I forgot what they're called, but these kind of trans people who dress up as nuns and kind of, in my opinion, really, really insult my, my faith. I'm Catholic. Um, by doing uh, this parody of the crucifix. I don't really know what they do. I don't want to know. But it's, it's, it was enough to get 5,000 Catholics from all over L.A., especially Hispanic Catholics, a uh, huge population of you know uh, Spanish-speaking people down there. Most of them are Catholic. Came out in huge numbers. This is about four or five weeks ago. And did a peaceful protest around Dodgers Stadium 
And then they even um, did the prayers in Latin, which our FBI has said is, you know, a, a sign of extremism and, you know, nationalism. And they used to say white nationalism. Well, when they went out there to Dodger Stadium, people didn't go to the game. They protested the whole game. And um, most of the, there's so many uh, Spanish Americans there that they dropped the white nationalism part. They had to. But there were maybe in the entire stadium about 100, 100 some odd people. It was empty. And they shut that down. And that is a huge loss for Major League Baseball. That's a huge revenue source. And to have something like that happen really makes them that they're going to have to change gears. Now, they'll change gears and hit us with some other direction. But the go woke, go broke thing is proving out to be a real thing because conservatives and I, I don't even like saying conservatives, everyone else who's not part of what I think is like 15 to 20 percent of the people who are in lockstep with these very Marxist totalitarian people, powers at be. Everyone else is just wanting to do their thing, live their life, have a cold beer and not be propagandized. You can push them and push them and push them, but you're always going to hit that button where you push too far. And in this case here, it's always when they when they when they attack children and, you know, attacking baseball, in my opinion, is attacking children because that's an American tradition. Take your kid to the game or when, you know, they attack uh, target attacking, you know, 11, 12 year old little boys clothing sections where you can't find stuff for little boys. And I, I experienced this early on, like what's going on in Target? When you attack children, it's always a bridge too far. And even, I mean, even, you know, throughout history, you, you never mess with the, with the kids because that's when things, really bad things happen and then it will derail you. And I, I think that's where they keep making the mistake is going after the kids. But of course, that's a that's the revolutionary handbook is to go after the kids. But people are aware yeah. of it. And they're fighting back. Just don't mess with the kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw in one of um, Michael Singer's uh, Twitter, th Twitter threads, he had these pictures there from, I guess it was Chinese revolution type <clears throat> stuff. Yeah. And um, in, the, in the pictures, one of them, and I think he did a little explainer of what we were actually seeing, was like kids and they had like a the dunce cap, which I, I don't know whether that's where the dunce cap came from or whether that's they just question. kind of like appropriate it, but... They were like stood at the front and they had all the, 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 the community and especially the parents, the parents were front and center and the kid had to basically kind of, you know, be shamed by the whole community and the parents had to watch them be shamed, you know, by the, the, um, communist mm -hmm. kind of leader who, who was there because they'd done something, they'd done something, you know, uh, that was considered against the cause or whatever. And it seems like China you know, is one of the only places which has successfully done this. They seem to, have, maybe it's not successful because, you know, you don't really know what the population of China think. You know, most people probably are against that government, but at least they got away with um, dealing with children in this way and trying to kind of like, you know, breaking apart families in this way. And that's something I don't, that's something that at least I have some hope for that is not going to happen in America or in, in the West. I think that we, I think that there is more of a fight there that we're willing to put up, especially in America. I think it's much more imbued into the into the history, you know, like family tradition and stuff is very, very strong in America. Well, I would say um, the, really the only difference, I think, between um, our families and the Chinese families is that they're a closed society. So we don't know and they don't know. They can't get past that, that firewall, that great wall. Um, 
but there's a huge tradition of um you know really tight families in 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 china and that's i think that's the reason why it was such a threat to the party is because those traditions are so tight and i do think china's having issues look they had issues early on with the one child policy where where people were you know they're killing the girl because they want to keep the boy well flash forward a generation later there's more men in china than women and they have a population problem um and so yeah, I think the families are so tight, and that's why they, they attack them so much. And I, I, I want to say, I think every family is different. You know, I, um, like there's tight families, there's not tight families. But I think for any totalitarian regime, the family is always going to be competition. Because my son comes home, and he's like, hey, Dad, they want us to wear Ukrainian colors tomorrow. But I don't know. He goes, I want to wait this one out because this whole thing seems a little shady. And I said, well, son, let's, uh, let's look at the old history books and let's, let's go back to 2013, 2012, and let's, let's learn about everything we can about Ukraine. And now he's an expert, and he, he schooled his own principal as to why the next day he wouldn't wear Ukrainian colors. He's like, I feel for the children. He goes, I also feel for the children of those Russian soldiers. He said, and, um, but he said, I don't know. He said, how can we run out of bullets if we've given a country $90 billion already? How would they run out of bullets? Are we sure those weapons are getting to them? And then his principal's like, well, we've been assured. He said, well, my dad showed me the Financial Times this weekend, and apparently about half of them are making it onto the European black market, so I don't think they're getting to them. And his principal called me. I thought he'd be in trouble. He called me in, and he called me in to compliment me to his credit. And he said it really wow. showed me that we need to maybe put a little more, you know, put a little more focus on history and contemporary yeah. history. That's great. That credit to that guy. Then that uh, was that the head teacher. Did you say? The, yeah, like the principal or the like dean. The dean. Yeah. And, you know, and and that's outside of Boston, so that's that's a good yeah. sign. That's really good. That's very. That's a humble thing to do. I think like mm-hmm. a lot of teachers would have just immediately been like, "Oh well, you know, this is a kid. Like they're just being disruptive or whatever." And you know, bring you know, at best they bring the parent in just to tell the parent that they're being disruptive. But to actually kind of say that and say, you know, like that's great that he's kind of learned about this stuff and he's willing to kind of speak his mind. That's the kind of stuff we should be rewarding in schools, right? Like yeah. it's actually just you know, initiative and like you know, independent thinking and stuff. But I I, I agree. But it starts at home. You know, a lot of people yeah, say, yeah. you know, too many Americans might, and look, myself included for a time, we've let the state become our daycare. We've let schools become our daycare. And every parent should be, and, you know, thank, the pandemic has some blessings in it. It's like we would have never known what they were teaching our kids at school had it not gone online. And we, you know, it took a few parents looking over their shoulders going, hey, whoa, whoa, what? And so, um, yeah, but it begins, you want to fight a revolution, you want to fight an evil revolution or fight totalitarianism, start at home, start with your kids, start with your castle, start with your neighbors, get these communities and, and they start growing. And that's why America and, and any free country can be so strong is because we still have communities, which is, of course, why they want to break communities up. It's why they targeted religion during these COVID lockdowns. Those are tough communities and communities rule over the state every time. So back to the kids, if more kids were going to school and challenging their teachers with some facts that they could source, um, 
they, you know, they could do nothing to our schools. You wouldn't need to be, you need to monitor, but, you know, if the kids themselves are, are the, you know, fighting from within and not even realize that they're fighting, kids just like to be right. And so, and it's fun. Like, that's what I tell people. It's fun. It's a lot more fun than giving your kid his device so you can work on whatever the hell you're working on. You know, I sit down with my kid now, and it's like, and I, I wasn't always perfect, but I sit down with my kid. We played six hours of Risk the other day, six hours, and we're, we're neck and neck. The game continues. But um, yeah. while we're doing that, we're watching the history of that, that country. And it's fun, and kids, and then he's now challenging other kids who they're challenging him back. So they're going home and learning more history. And he's teaching them about sourcing, which he got from me. And of course, Naomi's a step on, but, um, and they're going, these kids are all like competing with each other and they're learning more history than the teachers now. And if we could get those movements going more and more, um, because pulling your kids out of school is not an option for everyone. Homeschooling is not an option for everyone. So do what you can and make it fun for the kids and, and turn them into little, you know, those annoying little know-it-alls at school that the teacher has to go home and say, oh, damn, the 11-year-old knows more than me. And I, I went to Princeton, you know, so that's, that's, that's a counter-revolution that can be of epic proportions if every parent puts in the time. Nice. Well, not, since we're kind of talking about uh, solutions, I guess, like, let's start rounding up on that point then. So is there anything else that you would kind of put, put forward as solutions that, in, that individuals can do? Like, where do you see the where do you see the main areas that we can actually um, put efforts into to kind of try and combat this stuff and to try and build the build the worlds that we want to see? Um, get uh, the very first thing is, is limit your time in front of a screen You know, limit your time. There's only look, you don't. You don't know if you're putting something out on Twitter, Getter, or anything, how many people are seeing it. I could tell you when you talk to people who work all day, they don't know what you're talking about. You can say, oh, my God, they indicted Trump like they did, um, or they don't know. So what I say is get out in your community as much as you can and save the computer for nighttime or early morning. I recommend nighttime so it doesn't color your day. Um, but to get to the one, one specific strategy that I'm encouraging everyone to do is get to your town board meetings. Now, if you're in a city, get to your precinct meetings and look for new businesses coming in or new initiatives that change um, access to in natural environments like parks, everything like that, or new initiatives that are going to tear down the World War II clock in your town and challenge those, challenge the special use permits. We had a business coming into a small town near us and they wanted to install some sort of, I, I don't even get what the business was. It made no sense. But I was so impressed because 20 people from the community who were neighbors to where this business would be showed up to, to say no at this small town board. And they won. And they said, no, you, it's not right for us. You know, it's, it doesn't fit. And we're going to say no. And so you stop something right there. And these people, I said, how do you get so many people? They said, because we've lost so much until we realize we need to actually put in the time and come to these meetings. So we don't lose it all. We don't want to lose our land. We don't want to lose our, you know, peaceful environment up here. And these are not rich people. These are working class people who just finished a nine hour shift and are going to 
uh, town board meetings. So you got to put in the work. But town board meetings, looking at special use permits, read your local papers, read your county level papers, and look at the initiatives that are going through because you can don't waste time figuring out that Bill Gates is bad. We all know he's bad. There's nothing you could do about that. Figure out how you can affect right at your hometown because the way the Chinese Communist Party, the way political parties fight, they fight at the local level. And you have to fight them back there, whatever that is. Uh, getting involved in kids' schools, getting on the school boards, take over the school boards like my friends at Moms for Liberty have done. They've done this whole strategy across the country where they're getting people elected on school boards. But this is really what, to me, it, what it means. Like, freedom isn't free. You got to put in the work. You know, you got to put in the work. It's like a garden. If you just, you know, plant it and say, okay, good, we're free forever, you're not going to be. And then the final thing I'd say is, you know, run for office if you can. You know, you don't need to be rich to run for office. You just need people to donate. Hell, you could even use Open Collective if you'd like. <laughs> nice. Awesome. This has been really, really great, Brian. I, I mean, we got through a, a lot of stuff. There was still more stuff I wanted to talk Anytime. to you about. So hopefully yeah. we can have, yeah, hopefully we can have another one down the line. But I think that's a good point to round things off here. So before, um, yeah, just before I round things off, just a message to my listeners: uh, please consider supporting me. You can do that on um, Buy Me a Coffee. You can go there. There's three uh, membership tiers starting at just one pound a month. If you want to just give a small donation every month, you can also give a one-off donation, and you can donate with Bitcoin as well. Just check the links to those in the description. Um, Brian, just want to give you the opportunity as well, just to tell my audience where they can find you and you know where they can follow your work and just any other parting thoughts you have as well. Uh, absolutely, and thank you. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at at Brian O'Shea. That's B-R-I-A-N-O-S-H-E-A, S-P-I, like spy. Um, S-P-I is India. Um, getter, I am just Brian O'Shea, one word, and that's an I, not a Y. Uh, find me on Substack under Brian O'Shea. Uh, my column is called Investigate Everything. And of course, I am now a columnist at dailyclout.io, which is for disclosure owned by my wife, Dr. Naomi Wolf. And I have a column called Mostly Peaceful. You can always find me there. Reach out and uh, ask me questions. And I'll always respond. As far as parting thoughts, um, get to work. Don't wait for the cavalry. You are the cavalry. Cavalry incoming because you are it. And if you're waiting for people to fix things for you or look into things for you, if you got the time to ask, if you got the time to request, you got the time to do. So we, we all need to get and, and get coordinated while you do it. Reach out to your neighbors, come up with plans, come up with a precinct strategy or a local strategy and start doing and stop talking. Love it, Brian. Thank you so much. 